Give God praise that it is well with our souls in Jesus Christ. If you are trusting in Jesus this morning and you are coming into the presence of God, trusting only in Jesus and what He has done, you can say it is well with your soul. And um, I'm very well aware that sometimes the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I'm also well aware that uh, sometimes the spirit is not willing. And so you might not endure to the end of the sermon. So I must tell those of you who are not trusting in Jesus this morning, whoever you may be, if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, um, you cannot, you can go through the motions of saying it and singing it, but you cannot say it is well with your soul. Uh, one of the ways in which your um, life communicates what you are believing and what you are trusting is in fact the fruit that you bear. Is the fruit poisonous? Is the fruit rotten? Is the fruit unholy or unwholesome? Uh, those can be indicative of what you are abiding in, what you are trusting in. The question must be asked, are you trusting in Jesus? Are you not just trusting in Jesus in the sense of you've, you've prayed, uh, asked Him to forgive you of your sins, you know, you, you've, you've, um, you've been baptized and all that, but are you abiding in Christ? Are you resting in Him this morning? And that's the question that we all must ask. Uh, but if you can say yes, and you can also say it's well with my soul. Well, we're going to be in um, uh, this, this morning, First uh, Peter chapter 3. And I'm going to read the text in just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's, let's pray. 
Great God and most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would strengthen us hereby, that you would encourage us, and that as we rest in Christ, as we abide in Christ, we would bear good fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It is Palm Sunday, and uh, on this day we remember the moment in the life of Jesus when we are told in the Scriptures He had set His face like flint to Jerusalem. Nothing and no one could stop Him from marching upon the city. But it was not a march of war. It was not, at least uh, so far as the people therein were concerned, a declaration of conflict or an invasion of any form. But it was fundamentally as the Prince of Peace that He came. He was sat in fulfillment of prophecy on the back of a donkey. The uh, standard means of transportation for a king in that region of the world in peacetime. He was no threat to anyone unless you were evil unjust, immoral, and everything that people actually are. This is the the great sadness of it, that Jesus entered Jerusalem in peace and was celebrated, but did not meet the expectations of the people. And not only that, those who were upset about Him not measuring up to their more revolutionary expectations were insinuating that he was measuring up to those revolutionary expectations, those on the other side of the issue. So there were some for whom he was too little, and there were some for whom he was too much. But on that day as he entered into Jerusalem, they took palm branches and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, for it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered them. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Lazarus from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they'd heard he'd done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And that was too much. He had to be put to death. In fact, there were even people that, because Lazarus' resurrection was such a testament to the power of Jesus, they were plotting to kill him and put him in the grave again. A few days later, Jesus had eaten his last meal sung one final song and was walking to the garden of his betrayal when he began to speak of the vine and the branches. If you abide in him, you will bear fruit. If you read that in in John chapter 15, you will see that Jesus is the vine. You, those who are his followers, are the branches. Abide in him and you will bear fruit. I will keep saying it each one of these messages, because sometimes people don't get it. Um, It is not a command to bear fruit. It is a command to abide in Christ. 
and, and, and as you abide in Christ, you will bear fruit. If you are not bearing fruit, that calls into question whether you are abiding in Christ. If you're bearing the wrong kind of fruit, that calls into question if you are abiding in Christ. Because abiding in Christ is transformative. Peter is, in the text that we just read a, a moment ago, writing as one of the recipients of that final message from Jesus. When we go later into the New Testament, we read the Apostle Paul talking about the fruit of the Spirit that comes from those who abide in Christ. Do you remember the first of those? What is it? Someone shout it out. Love. And the second one? Joy. And does anyone remember what the third one is? From Peace. And so, um, uh, we, when we think of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how we are abiding in Jesus and what comes from that, we will have love, joy, and peace. And if you read John 15 where Jesus is talking about, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me and you will bear fruit, He actually talks about love as fruit of abiding in Him. He's not talking about your personal health, wealth, and material prosperity when He says you will bear much fruit. That, 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 that's a butchery of His words. That, I mean, is all of that good? It can be. It can be absolutely fine, especially if stewarded for the glory of God. But that is not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying you will have love. He also says, I'm saying these things, that your joy may be full. And would you believe it? He also says that He's telling them this so that they might have peace. The road is hard. Jesus tells His disciples in the words that follow His um, uh, analogy of the vine and the branches that they will be hated by the world. If you are abiding in Christ, you will be hated by the world. The world will persecute you, he says. Now, one might expect that. But he then says they will put you out of the synagogues, which is to say it's not just the world, it's not just the people who don't believe in God who will hate you and persecute you, but it's also those who are in places of worship, those who seem to be God-fearing men and women. He actually says they will kill you and think that they are serving God. Jesus said that the hour of these sufferings will come. Now that's a very interesting way of putting it. He does not speak of the day of these sufferings or the age of these sufferings or even the time of these sufferings. The hour of these sufferings. Because the sufferings and trials of life are but for a moment, but His joy is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And um, uh, we get to the end of Scripture and we see that, that we will live in perpetual mourning. For there, there will be no night and there will be no need for lamps or anything of the sort because we will dwell forever in the light of God. But there's an hour that's coming. He says, when you will suffer. And I'm telling you this, he says, so that one day you will remember. I gave you advance notice. 
Again, Peter is writing the words we just read a moment ago as an initial recipient of that advance notice. He had in that last conversation been shown a verbal trailer, if you will, and the movie was a horror. He writes as a suffering man, very much at the margins of society to suffering Christians who have been scattered and live now as strangers and exiles in a hostile environment. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That, that's not what one would expect from someone who has been so badly abused. That is not what one might expect from someone who is writing to people who are suffering. Shouldn't, shouldn't he be telling them to, to rise up and, and um, to, to fight back and uh, justifying what might be called bad behavior, but perhaps we might say, well, it's not bad behavior. It's, it's completely deserved. It's completely righteous. But no, he, he tells them to seek peace and pursue it. Which is a very hard, hard ask in a world at war with you. Peace is not always the absence of struggle and suffering. And that's what we need to understand when we're thinking about peace this morning. Peace is not always the absence of struggle and suffering. But it is the ability to endure such things without despair or defeat. It is knowing that you have present help and eternal hope so whatever happens, you can get through it. It's knowing, as we read in the psalm earlier, about coming to rest in the shadow of His wings. It's knowing when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death that there is a greater shadow. And it is not one of ruin, but it is one of refuge. It, it, it is not always characterized by good weather and the ability to, um, uh, uh, to, to enjoy all things everywhere. And it, 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 is, it is not smooth sailing. It is the ability to rest through bad weather. It goes deep to the state of your heart and mind. When the world, the flesh, and the devil are opposed to you, but you are not shaken or enslaved to oppressive forces from within or without. It is linked, yes, to the other aspect of this spiritual fruit that we have also explored. For it is peace when you can keep on loving in the presence of hate. And it is peace when you can retain your joy in the face of attack. That is peace. And it is freedom. The freedom for which Christ has set us free. Peace is, as we look at the text, rooted first, we see it is rooted in the person and work of Christ. If you would this morning seek peace and pursue it, which is a command, you can only seek peace and pursue it as one who has found lasting peace as you abide in Christ. The fruit that you bear does overflow into good works which are commanded by Jesus. 
through His apostles. But as you seek peace and pursue it, you have to go back to your resting place. If you would seek peace and find it, you have to go back to the vine. And so, it commands us back to abiding in, in Christ. The text that we read is preceded by and succeeded by comment on the person and work of Christ all throughout, which is where we must start. If you would seek peace and pursue it, you must start with who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Go to chapter 1. Turn, turn a page probably. One page over. Chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Verse 2, it talks about... Is that peaceful language? Doesn't sound it. Sprinkling with His blood. Verse 12, the sufferings of Christ. Verse 19, still chapter 1, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It's not a good... Blood is a great thing, but it's not a good thing when you see it. It's not healthy. It's not, it's not like when you see blood... There has been some injury. It's not meant to be visible. But he's speaking repeatedly of the sufferings of Christ and the blood of Christ. Verse 4 of chapter 2, he, he changes analogies from um, uh, uh, literal physical blood to this picture of Jesus as a stone, a cornerstone. But he says that he's a living stone rejected by men. Uh, verse 21 of chapter 2, Christ suffered for you. Verse 24 of chapter 2, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is what, what Jesus has done. He has suffered for us. His blood was shed for us that we might be brought to God. That we might be forgiven. That our sins might be paid for. That God's justice might be satisfied. That His wrath might be turned away. That those who were far might be brought near. And that we might have peace by the blood of the cross. And thus he, he goes on to say in the text that we just read a moment ago, Verse 15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Which Christ? This Christ, the one who suffered for you, the one who died for you, the one whose blood was shed for you. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Let me be very clear. You can never earn salvation. Nor can you ever earn the um, uh, the the work of, of um, Jesus. You do not and never will deserve what He did for you. There is an analogy, however, that I trust you see the, the comparison. For those who enjoy cinema, um, uh, uh, you will know the uh, World War II epic film from the 1990s, Saving Private Ryan, which ends with, uh, basically, spoiler alert, uh, it was in the 90s, so I really shouldn't have to do that even. But um, if you were going to watch it, you were going to watch it. Um, it ends with basically everyone's dead. Everyone who has gone to save Private Ryan 
is laying on the ground, bleeding out, especially the, the one who was leading the mission. And as he's taking his last breaths, old Private Ryan, reminiscing at the gravestone of this man, flashes back to when this dying soldier says, earn this, earn this. And you see the old man perhaps feeling that he hadn't earned it. That he'd lived his life and nothing remarkable had followed. But he's alive. And he has a family. And yet he can't get over that sacrifice. He's alive because that man died. And a trail of other people to save him. Friends, we, we can't earn the sacrifice of Jesus. We can't earn the application of the sacrifice of Christ to our accounts. All we can do is repent and believe. But can we at least grasp the spirit of that? That Jesus died for us. He gave His life for us. And as we reflect all the time, as a Christ-centered, cross-centered church. But especially this Easter week, fresh remembrances of it. Jesus' death ought to have some implications for us and how we live and how we are. If we're abiding in Christ, how is that shaping our interaction? Yes, even with suffering with things that didn't go to plan, with things that don't go our way. Sometimes our suffering falls so far short of what these brothers and sisters were going through. And we have far worse attitudes. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That is the voice of an apostle who saw Jesus bleeding His life out and suffocating to death on a cross, saying, Jesus died so that you can be free. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. The Christ of whom He says in, in, in uh, verse 3 uh, of the following, we see Christ also suffered once for sins. The, um, uh, the righteous, verse 18 rather, uh, of chapter 3, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Do you see what Peter is doing? He is repeatedly telling suffering people as a suffering person that they are going to be okay. That they are going to make it. That they are not alone in their experience of suffering. We need to recalibrate sometimes how we interact with brothers and sisters who suffer. Yes, even brothers and sisters who experience injustice. Because I've seen a lot of people, their reaction to someone who's suffering or injustice is to say, well, there's only ever been one true victim. They'll say that. You know, that there's only actually one 
injustice in human history, and that was the, the, the murder of Jesus. Do we see the, the logical and theological implications of saying something like that? Never mind the pastoral atrocity of it. That means there's no murder. They deserved it. Someone says, all, it's not the time to say all have sinned. We're all sinners and we all deserve infinitely work. That's not the appropriate context for that conversation. Scripture is replete. With, uh, read the Psalms. Just the Psalms. We do that every Thursday night. We pray through the Psalms. And they're talking about people who are oppressed. People who are suffering. People who are persecuted. Peter is very clear. You're exiles. You're strangers. You're hated. You're rejected. Jesus was very clear. So, how can we better care for those who are suffering, for those who are victims of assault or abuse or persecution or any number of things. Not by pointing them to Jesus and saying, well, He's the only actual one who suffered in a way that He didn't deserve it. That's not what Peter does. He puts his arm around them as one who's suffering himself and says, look at Him. There's our Savior. He endured. Let's keep going. We'll make it. All that Jesus accomplished at the cross event, His crucifixion and His resurrection, um, relate to how we experience suffering. Peter is saying, you don't need to fear a world of death. You don't need to fear death itself. Yes, it's evil. Yes, the world hates you. Yes, it's bad. But you don't need to be afraid. Look, a trail of blood leads to the tomb. But the stone is rolled away. And the tomb is empty. The grave clothes are folded. And there are footprints on the other side of the grave. Jesus is risen. And so throughout Peter, there's this constant interplay between the theme of Christ's suffering and Christ's blood and His resurrection. It can be summarized, though as constant and more so as references to His suffering, it can be summarized in chapter 1 where he says, immediately... At the very beginning of the letter, verse 3, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Endure now, friends. Know that you are loved. Know that you are helped. Know that you are kept. And know that you have hope forever and one day we'll enter into the fullness of that hope will pass away because reality has been embraced peace is rooted in the person and work of Christ but it is proven through the suffering of Christians he says that you have been grieved by various trials. Chapter 
2, um, he says, you are being, uh, that was in verse, chapter 1, verse 6. In chapter 2, he says, verse 9, you are being built together into a spiritual house for the Lord. But the cornerstone around which you were built is rejected. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. But no longer being strangers to God has now made you strangers in the world. Being home with God has made you exiles in the world. The text with which we um, began there in chapter 3, 8 through 17 is framed by an opposite world that I dare say is very familiar to us. Instead of unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind, we see division and strife, anger and malice, hatred, emotional abuse, psychological manipulation, economic oppression, spiritual attack, verbal bullying and physical assault directed at Christians in various ways, interpersonally and systemically around the world. Even in your life. Just think for a moment. Uh, let me ask you a, 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 an honest question to, to get you to think. Probing question. Are there aspects of your faith and life that you are uneasy or anxious about sharing with others? Think about that. Are there aspects of your faith and life, what you believe and how you behave and what that what you believe that means really for the world that you are uneasy or anxious about sharing with others just at a conversational level. With friends, with colleagues, with classmates. Now, why do you think that is? It was interesting, yesterday I was at this conference speaking and I was supposed to do the Q&A, and there was a mountain of questions, many of which indicated that young adults are being discipled more by the world than by the church. One of the questions um, uh, raised a couple of things. It said at the beginning, well, I know that we have to be clear, this and this and this are sins. What they listed were things that are normalized in our society, things that are just accepted and not just only accepted, but also celebrated. And they said, but, but why do we talk about these things? Because, you know, lying and murder are also sins. Why, why, why do we talk about these things and, and not lying and murder so much? And it was a very interesting uh, question. It's not, very, it's not a good question, to be honest. It really isn't. It's a, it's a very stupid question. Lying is not acceptable. If you're caught lying to your boss... You may be fired. You know, the corruption is a form of lying as well. There are, I, I told them, there are people in other parts of the world who if they address the corruption in, um, in their environment, even environments here, if they address that, they suffer. 
And it's hard. It actually takes guts to speak out about something that's normal in your environment or celebrated in your environment. Murder. That's not something that we are um, particularly celebrating in our culture at the moment. So, so, I mean, it's always difficult to speak about the things that your society celebrates. We, we live on the other side of so many social advances that were led by Christians. Was it easy in an environment that not only observed but also celebrated slavery, particularly race-based slavery? that dehumanized whole continents of people. Was was it easy? And we might say from our comfort here, it should have been easy. But was it easy when everyone disagreed with you to say, this is wrong. He made all the nations of one blood. He made them in His image. Read the sermons from those days. Hear the fire in those, those preachers' bellies and understand they were at breaking point because the world was against them. Because they were, as Paul and the apostles were to the Ephesian um, idol-making industry, they were a threat to the economic system of their day. What, what are we a threat to? And that's, that's where we have to start asking we let ourselves too easily be silenced on things related to the glory of God in our world. I hope that's making sense. Why do you think it is that you're anxious and uneasy? Just about a conversation, a casual conversation, with friends even. Why are there certain things you studiously avoid? If it were expressed, what do you think the consequences would be? What are the things that keep you quiet and that you keep quiet? The places where you keep your head down and may even find yourself complicit or participant in things that do not please the Lord, do not honor His Word, and do not reflect hearts that have accepted the reality of Jesus as Lord and are honoring Him as holy. The text takes it as given that you will have evil committed against you. It takes it for granted that you will be reviled. Does it not? Do not repay evil for evil. He's assuming evil. Do not repay reviling for reviling. He's assuming you will be reviled. There are people who could harm you. Verse 13, Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer, you will be blessed. They could harm you and they might harm you. There are those who might, or who you might, without peace, be made to feel afraid. There are those who will not ask you good faith questions, but will interrogate you. And you are told to treat them, he says, with gentleness and respect. Why do you think he has to tell them, but answer them with gentleness and respect? If you might otherwise be easily led to do otherwise. We are... Not told if you are slandered. Did you notice that? He doesn't say if you are slandered. Verse 16, he says when you are slandered. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 
if you respond to them with gentleness and respect. He says you can, you can, you can only love. You can only help. You can only be patient and kind. And people will slander you in the most heinous ways. Do you not believe me? So there are some that will trip over themselves. Oh, we need to be warm and we need to be winsome, which you should be. Absolutely. We need to be gentle and we need to be respectful. But there comes a point in this world that is in rebellion against God where that will not protect you. <coughs> you can avoid everything and it still becomes a problem. You can live a peaceful and quiet life in Christ Jesus and that in Christ Jesus becomes the issue. Because why is it not in someone else? Why Jesus? He's the way, the truth, and the life. But that what you believe and who you believe in and why you believe it is not enough. You can cover up, you can hide away, everything, and it still becomes an issue eventually. Do we, do we understand that? Here's something I'm not sure if we realize the, the severity of. You can even only be kind, only be patient, only be gracious and loving and helpful to people who profess the name of Christ. And you'll still be slandered into oblivion. Not quite. I'm still standing. All right, think about it. Let's be real. Pastoral to church members now. Some of you know, last year someone circulated a 33,000 word document that they took time Hours and days to compose. That's the length of a book, by the way. It could be published. With nasty and venomous words, outright lies, misrepresentations, deeply unpleasant biases and prejudices, and disgusting characterizations and caricatures of church members and non-members alike, as well as me. Someone we called brother for years. Brothers and sisters were weaponized against each other. Their word leveraged against someone else's in the accounting over the most absurd and ridiculous things. Sometimes it made me wonder if in weaker moments where I stood with other people, with the congregation. That man claimed to be representing Christ. He thought he was doing God. A service. His words might have been from Satan, which they were. Didn't stop him. If it doesn't stop people who profess to believe in Jesus, how will it stop people who don't even have that profession? The end of last year, there was a campaign of texts that was... Struck up against my wife of all people. I can understand someone not liking me. I honestly can understand someone writing nasty stuff about me. Truth, truly. But someone texting in a campaign fashion other women in the church accusing her of frankly horrific things that I will not dignify repeating. The source of those texts wasn't hidden but open. It's interesting though, less easy to trace were a series of anonymous posted letters that were filled with nasty accusations also about Uliana but addressed to me 
and they were primarily obscene, sexual, and aggressive in nature. Friends, when you are slandered, not if you are slandered. Or this year, all it takes is a little word. Sometimes one word. Daniel knows what I'm talking about. We had a really good chat. Daniel and I had a nice lunch on Friday. And it occurred to me that this brother has seen everything I have seen in this church because you were probably two years old, um, three years old, something like that, uh, when we met. And we've been through a great deal. And you've been away at uni. So now hearing Daniel's perspective, seeing church life over the past 15, 16, 17 years through his eyes was quite something, uh, very insightful. But um, one word. Last week, we had a great week, I thought. So, you know, um, we, we had a baptism. We had um, members accepted, celebrated that, posted about it online so others can celebrate. So, Someone known to those who have been in the church for quite a few years at least, who herself was baptized here by me and loved, helped, cared for like anyone else, maybe more so, and I have the receipts to prove it, responded to the news of new members and baptism with a laughing emoji and one word, joke. I mean, it's silly. It's nonsense. You don't take it seriously. But if you called this person sister and you walked with them, do you not see the pain and the grief of that? And, and when they ghosted you out of nowhere, like they just went silent. And you were every week, you have the emails you sent the church, pray for this person, pray for this, pray for their family, pray for their, their sick family member that they're caring for. And all of the quite possibly untrue constructions that were built for why we did not see them for so long. All of those things. We live in a reprehensibly evil, demonic society that is opposed to God and His, His Word. And it's getting even to people who professed faith in Christ. May it not get to us. If we are abiding in the vine, we will bear fruit. And that fruit is not one of bitterness. It's one of peace. Each of those people that I have mentioned breaks my heart. But if they were to come to a place of repentance, I would embrace them in tears and treat them as I treat anyone else. And I, 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 I believe that that has nothing to do with me because I know what I feel and how I feel. It has everything to do with Jesus. He suffered and died for me. And He's risen. And so I can suffer. I can suffer well. And the things that I suffer are so minuscule compared to what He endured. So what is it? We move on. And we do so in the power of God which is where I want to close. Peace is sustained by the power of God. 1 Peter 1, verses 5-6 through 6 say that we are being guarded by God's power through faith 
for a salvation already to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, grieved by various trials, but now, in this, I rejoice. Not in the various trials and in the grief, but in the simultaneous experience of joy and rejoicing in the presence and power of God for all that He has done, all that He is doing, and all that He has laid up for me. He, you walk through these verses, this is God's power, not His. They're being killed. They're being slaughtered. They're being persecuted. They're being jailed. They're... Peter will eventually be crucified. But he says, have unity of mind. How can we be divided in the face of great enemies? Unity of mind. Sympathy. How can we be cold and callous to our brother or sister who is suffering? Or even to members of society who do not know Jesus and, and don't know what they do. Brotherly love. Tender hearts. Humble minds. Some have, have spoken, I, I seem to recall one of the sermons of the um, civil rights era, uh, um, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King spoke of having tough minds and tender hearts. To be tough-minded and tender-hearted is to say, though they, they hurt me, I will love them. And I will choose intentionally to love. And I will solidify my inner being so that I can endure the taunts and the sufferings. That's what Peter is saying. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay reviling for reviling. Bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Then he quotes Psalm 34. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So, desires to love life and see good days. That is thoughts that are transformed by the power of God. Lips that don't speak evil or deceit, that's speech. So what you think and what you say is transformed by the power of God. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. That, that's what you do. So every aspect of your being, what you think, what you say, and what you do is transformed by the power of God. And if you think about where David was when he sang this, because it, there's a superscription in the psalm. And it says, when David changed his behavior before Ahimelech. Who was that? The king of Gath. Why was David in Gath? He just killed Goliath, the champion of Gath. Well, he was being hunted by his king and his best friend's dad had just tried to impale him against the wall. And so he ran, as one would do. And he's there running from his king, running from his nation, running from the people over whom he was anointed to be king. And he runs straight to the enemy because he's safer there. And then he gets there and he's recognized. One can imagine David walking around, hooded up, just sort of prowling the streets of Gath, trying to, you know, trying to keep low. They recognize the eyes. 
But what's that's David. Well, he, he quickly dropped to the ground at the gates. And uh, the king, you know, found out David's in my city. Well, it's time to, to rough this guy up a bit. David made himself so pathetic that the king did not have the heart to do anything. So this man is clearly broken. It, it says that he let the, uh, the drool run over his beard. And he sat vacant-eyed, scratching at the door. It was all an act, which makes me think David was also a pretty entertaining guy. But um, um, he, he, he's, he's there really, really putting on this show. And then he gets out of Dodge and he goes to a cave. And somewhere in the midst of all of this, perhaps as he's awaiting his army, which turns out to be 400 of society's most depressed, he writes this psalm. He suffered injustice. He's running. Enemies to the left of him. Enemies to the right of him. And he, he, he is finding his refuge in God. And he's determined, I'm not going to let my circumstances shape what I think, say, and do. But my Lord. The inner reality of peace shapes our pursuit of peace and our outward pursuit of peaceableness. As Jesus came to the end of His words about the vine and the branches and the sufferings that He would endure and the sufferings His disciples would endure, He assured them that He was going to His Father. He was leaving them the Holy Spirit to help them. And He was assuring them that they would be together again one day. Forever. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take those words, use them as a lens with which to read the words that, that we've worked through this morning. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. That's the person and work of Christ. In the world you will have tribulation. That's the suffering of Christians. But take heart. I have overcome the world. That's the power of God. And that's how we will have peace. Amen.